0: hello and welcome to zookeeping 101 this is the zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper all views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for so please come along for the journey enjoy the ride and thank you for listening Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today I'm very happy to introduce to you Thomas Maunders. Now, t- welcome, Tom, to the show. Hiya, how are you? Now, very, very well. Very glad to get you on. Now, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and, and what position you hold. Great.
1: Uh, so I'm Thomas Maunders. I'm a senior keeper at Whipsnade Zoo on the ectotherm section. Um, I've worked here for eight years now, and as well as being a zookeeper, I'm also the co-chair of the Whipsnade Zoo Behavioural Management Committee, and uh, manage an EEP for four species of freshwater asian turtle all of which are critically endangered and worse and i as of last month have just become a member of the iaza conservation translocation working group wow
0: that's a that's a mouthful in itself there's a lot going on in your world and uh, it all sounds very exciting now as we both know unless you're very fortunate you don't just roll into those positions you have to do the hard graft you have to to go on a journey to get to where you are today and i'm sure you've got a story to tell so for our listeners do you have those stepping stones do you have those keystone moments throughout your career to to get to where you are today
1: yeah i mean as as you say it's not something that just falls into your lap it is something since becoming a zookeeper i've always wanted to be involved in any ep and more conservation based work i think being on the section that i'm on really helps with that because obviously when you're working with fish invertebrates reptiles and stuff like that the conservation value that you can produce generally is higher than it is with your mammals because you don't require as much space you can dedicate half a room to a species and breed from 10 different animals and suddenly in a year's time have a thousand animals that are ready to be released and so working on the section that I'm on has really helped with that as far as the Behavioural Management Committee, that was something that was already here at ZSL when I started eight years ago. And their main aim was to include and incorporate training and enrichment as everyday part of ZSL. And I first joined for a year as a committee member and um, because training and enrichment is something I'm really passionate about. After about a year, a position became available to become a co-chair, and I applied, was very fortunate to be offered the position, which I accepted, and seven years later, I'm still in that role.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Where, Where did it all begin? Did you go to university? Did you go straight into the role? What career path did you take?
1: I am one of two people on our team that didn't go to university, so I did two years at college, about a month before the college course ended. I sent an email to every single zoo in the country to see if there were any positions going. And then at the very bottom of the list was a place called Butterfly World, which was about a 20 minute drive away from where I live. And I thought, oh, yeah, I guess I don't mind butterflies. So I emailed them and out of the hundreds of zoos that I applied for, Butterfly World had a position. So I was there for four years and I managed their um, invertebrate collection there. Um, So we had a butterfly house, we had an insect house, we also had the UK UK's largest leaf cut ant colony. And we were the first in the UK and only the second in Europe to captively breed a colony of leafcutter ants. So that was something that was pretty amazing. I'd like to say it took years of dedication and delicate tweaking, but it actually just happened naturally over one winter. We had um, queen from one colony and some soldiers from the other. They mated in the building that we kept them in and uh, set up their own colony in one of the flower
0: beds in the room. For sure. For sure. Now sounds very much like you've, you've been on a journey. You've been a safe, through a variety of places the taxonomic groups you're touching on them there but if someone was to try and put you in a box would you say you're a certain taxa in terms of keeper no
1: and i think that's what i really enjoy about my position so when I started at Whips and Aid, our section actually covered all taxa. So we had some dwarf mongoose, we had four different species of primates, we had some birds, as well as our reptiles and amphibians. But as the zoo has changed and progressed over the year, we've now become uh, more taxa-specific sections. So we now just have uh, reptiles and fish and invertebrates. Well, yeah, one of the things that I like in my role is, although we're one big team, We have members of staff whose skill set and interests are mainly based either with the aquarium or with the invertebrates and reptiles, uh, whereas my role covers both. So for me, depending on who is in that day and where help is needed... I'm quite fluid in being able to work across both groups. For me, that keeps things interesting.
0: No, for sure. For sure. Now, obviously, with regards to that, it's the modern day way of of zookeeping is enrichment. You need to enrich your animal's lives. And I'm a true believer that if it enriches the keeper's life, you're doing a pretty good job for your animal at the same time. So with regards to enrichment, every taxonomic group has got to have a different variety. You know, if it's aquatic life, it's got to be waterproof. If it's for something, maybe large hoofstock, it's got to be hardy and, and so on and so forth. So with regards to enrichment, is there any certain thing that you've learned, something you've created that works for your specific taxa? Yeah,
1: as you say, I think the complex thing with our section is because we do cover so many different taxes, you've got to be able to provide different types of enrichment with different goals for different species. And sometimes that can even um, change... So, like, obviously, some of our small fish, generally, the sort of enrichment that we do will be enclosure enrichment. So we will provide new plants, or we will change locations of spawning mops, and it's more about manipulating their environment to make them feel as comfortable and safe as possible. Whereas with some of our bigger fish, like our stingrays and stuff like that, we can actually have training programs where we get them to come to a target, and we can target feed them. But one of the enrichment devices that I'm really happy with a wiffle ball for a turtle. Now, for those of you that don't know what a wiffle ball is, it's an American training baseball. So it's just a plastic ball with loads of uh, circular holes in, of different shapes and sizes. And this turtle was performing a repetitive behaviour, and um, when we would service its enclosure, that by using the wiffle ball, we were actually able to stop that repetitive behavior Um, for the first few times we offered it to the turtle we would put different food items in there and every time he would take a food item because it would be in his water he'd knock it and he'd float away and then when he went to get the next food item he'd have to chase after it but through lots of observations and studies we actually found out the ball was as effective at stopping that repetitive behavior whether it had food in or not so he almost has that ball 24 hours a day now and anytime he wants to go and play with it he can Um, and the balls also come in different colors shapes sizes so if we ever want to mix it up and make it slightly more enriching for him we can change the color or the size
0: sounds great sounds uh very very enriching um which is a great for that little one now obviously the, the flip side to that and you touched on it with the start of that answer and that is enriching is one thing But we can do so much more without even thinking about it, and that is good enclosure design. Now, with that, obviously, once again, Taxonomic Group plays a big influence in creating a really good enclosure and something which can benefit the animal when you're not there. So with regards to your taxa and the enclosure itself, are there any quirky moments? Are there any certain parts of that that enclosure which really need to be looked at slash you've developed to, to aid that taxa? I
1: don't think you understand how much you have to cater and provide for not even every species, but sometimes just individuals and um, so making sure that for your reptiles mm. all of the heating's correct the lighting's correct uh, your ambient temperatures are correct there's basking spots in the right place your branching is of the right diameter and length for the animal to actually use i always say to any students that are with us and um, i feel like reptiles and mammals and birds are reasonably forgiving you can get away with giving them a good enclosure and okay your basking branch maybe two centimetres thinner than it should be whereas with fish because they're so specialist and you're having to provide not only the right water temperature but the right type of filtration the right planting they are very unforgiving and if you tend to miss one of those things or it's not perfect the consequences of that can be catastrophic at times. For enclosures I, I would focus on reptiles and I think unless the enclosure is a biome or something equivalent to a biome then it's just not big or complex enough. For me I really enjoy reptile enclosures that are of mixed species. It really helps to uh, mimic the natural habitat and when you're talking to public about it you can actually say well when you conserve areas of land and habitat rather than just focusing on one species your effect on conservation is far wider because if you protect part of the rainforest that has a pond in as well as different types of trees and shrubs and bushes you will be protecting fish you'll be protecting birds you'll be protecting any reptiles or invertebrates that live in there so having a really nice mixed species Enclosure and is something that I'm really passionate about. And for the aquarium at Whipsonade, our 10 tanks that are on show to the public depict that. So we have. Um, mixed tanks are in there, but all of our tanks are based on an area of the world. So we've got a tank based on Australia, Madagascar and stuff like that. But as I said, in a enclosure or biome, you could have a turtle that lives in the water body at the bottom with a snake or a lizard that lives in the branching above. And depending on what animals you choose, you could also have invertebrates. So the um, land area for the turtle could have millipedes or fruit beetles in. I really want to see how reptile husbandry advances over the next few years, because when I started, I think Reptile husbandry and training and enrichment was definitely lacking behind mammals. Even in the years that I've been working as a zookeeper, it's nice to see how far it's come on. For me, I would like to see enclosures where the basking spot moves across the enclosure over the course of the day as it would in the wild. And I'd also like to see the ambient lighting and temperature be linked via an app to wherever they are found in the wild. So that temperature and lighting matches their natural habitat and rain systems like how much rain is put into the enclosure. And that is one of the things we actually did at Butterfly World with our leafcutter ant colony. Didn't have any of the technology. So we just used a, a watering can and we'd look on someone's weather app. And if it had rained that day in Trinidad and Tobago, we'd water the soil. If it didn't rain, we wouldn't water the soil. And sometimes it can be as simple as that. You don't need... Um, all singing, all dancing, bits of technology. It can be as simple as just using a watering can and checking what the conditions are like um, in the wild. And I'd also like to see more nighttime lighting. I think when we go home, we don't forget about the animals, but we don't really take time to consider what ambient lighting they'd be receiving in the wild at night. Um, So for this taxa to try and recreate their natural environment as closely as possible, um, is something that I would really like to see from enclosures.
0: No, for sure. A really, really great answer. And I think you're exactly right. We are uh, an industry which is very mammal heavy. I think it's it's shown throughout our collections that you know unfortunately our guests love cute and fluffy and, and that generally speaks volumes for our mammals you're exactly right I think for our reptiles for our fish for our amphibians I think they are very much on the rise in terms of within the keeping industry and and hopefully as you say it will only come on stride on stride but you're, you're very much flying the flag from right now so that's uh it's, it's some great stuff and i'm sure stuff that people will take away now moving on to this next part and that's do you have any advice for looking back at your younger self and the career you've had or or simply for our listeners is there any advice you've gathered from your journey
1: yeah i think the advice that i always try to give to any of students or work experience or our seasonal keepers is not to give up when trying to apply for jobs because i know from my experience how frustrating it can be applying for job after job and either not hearing anything back from the zoo or the organisation or hearing back to find that you didn't get an interview. And it can be really demoralising, but if you keep persevering, eventually those interviews will come. For me, I applied for zookeeping jobs for three years before I got my first interview. And then when I did get my first interview, the week after I had three interviews in a week. So I think for me, it just really goes to show that the industry are looking for people who are willing and motivated. And I think part of that is by persevering to try and get those interviews. And also whilst you're young, and you don't have As many bills to pay or as many responsibilities, volunteering and doing what you can to make your CV stand out will really help get you those interviews. And I think with zoos that are also doing the apprenticeships now, that's really going to help people who are trying to start out their careers. I mean, when I started, as I said, I had to do a two-year college course and then I had four years of zookeeping experience. And then when I started here at Whipson Aid, I still came in as a trainee, so then had to do two years of the DIMSA and that was with a college course of the equivalent level and four years practical experience. I'm really glad that I did do that and I've progressed my way up through the ranking here at ZSL because you get to experience the zoo from the very start of your career and now I can water change a fish tank and know that okay if I'm filling it up I've now got eight minutes where that's filling up so I can go and do something else. But you only ever really get to learn that by doing all those jobs that take that time and learning through experience.
0: Yeah, no, some some really good advice. I think exactly that. Determination's key. Keep pushing on because it is... It's a very worthwhile industry once you're in. Um, it's just getting through that first door effectively. So no, some, some great advice. Now, we're leading on to the main chunk of this podcast. Now, this is, uh, we call it the big questions. It's, it's the bunch of questions which are very much everyone talks about, everyone wants to know the answers to, but everyone evades the questions most of the time. So we'll see how we get on um, as we, we poodle through them. Now, your first question, very simply, is the current zookeeping job it's huge you know we're not just simply that traditional poo picker or bunny hugger we're now nutritionists we're now behaviorists we're now educationists you know we're the, we're the whole package and there's a huge demand on us to to fulfill that role what would you say the largest challenges as a zookeeper and, and how do you overcome it yeah
1: so i think one of the biggest challenges other than actually getting into the industry is learning to say no because as you say We're not just zookeepers anymore. We're having to research nutrition. We're having to research for our taxa. Almost daily, there's a new paper coming out that is saying, oh, you should be providing your animals with this. We're having to learn how to train Um, enclosure design as well for our Taxa is something that a lot of people don't think about. Most reptile collections, or unless it's a really big enclosure, will do their own theming. And even then some some zoos and some bigger zoos will even do it for their bigger enclosures learning to say no whilst being respectful and finding that boundary of actually where your job does start and stop and obviously as you progress from a trainee keeper up to a senior keeper your responsibilities change and you do get a higher workload but I think especially for new staff because it does usually take a while to get into the industry when you're in it you tend to try and do as much as possible to show that willingness because that's what got you your interview and got you your job and that can include staying late or working on your days off and whilst I still do that now occasionally I do think that drawing that line between okay this is what I'm expected to do and this is what I'm paid to do as opposed to this is what I feel like I should be doing I think that line needs to be a little less blurred and actually one of the things I have seen from younger keepers they are much better at setting those boundaries and saying no I work till five o'clock all of my jobs are done, unless it is an animal emergency, I don't need to stay late. And as I said, it's something that I'm still working on, even after eight years of being in the role. And as I said, I do still work late, and I do do computer work in my own time and come in on my days off. However, recently, I went to Spain to look for Iberian links. And whilst away, I deleted the um, work WhatsApp group and muted my emails so that I could have five days away where i did not have to think about work. And I think social media as well and WhatsApp, everyone's in about 100 WhatsApp groups now. The work WhatsApp groups don't infringe on your days off and is something that I still do think needs improving. And I will say as well, I do occasionally have to text colleagues when it's their days off to find information out about animals and stuff like that, I think not only doing it for long periods where you mute your work WhatsApp group, but I know now going forward when I do go away or I do have days off, I am now setting that boundary where I say to the team that are in on those days, if you need me, you're going to have to text me personally because I've muted the works group. And unless it is really, really important, I would rather not know for the two days that I'm off. And then anything that can be left, I can pick up on my next day
0: no totally and and this is pretty much linked perfectly to that second question you're, you're pretty much answering it already which is is cracking and that is that, that home and work life you've just touched on it the 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 saying no is the first thing but the second thing is sadly however much we all get told by our bosses that you know, it's good to have a home life, get that, you know, that break away from your work life. Your animals follow your home in your brain, in your work and so on. I guess the question I've got for you alongside that then is, is it actually possible to leave your your animals, your work, your, your passion behind with you? Or does it always follow your home? I think at the minute, if you took
1: a poll of zookeepers, I would think there would be an overwhelming majority that say it does come home with you. But just because that's how it is now doesn't mean that that's how it has to be for the future. And I think that in general, the work-life balance of zookeepers across all zoos would be made better by having more staff because we are an industry that relies on our entrance fees to pay wages and to buy food for animals and stuff like that. I have visited... God knows how many zoos, and I cannot remember a zoo that I've visited where the keepers on the ground think that they have enough staff to do the workload that they have on their section. I do understand from a manager's point of view and a zoo point of view why it's not always possible to have more staff, but I do feel like now zoos in general are trying to provide their staff with a better work-life balance and actually by hiring one or two extra members of staff it would be the most effective solution to that problem. However saying that I do believe as long as you can make time in your personal time for things that you enjoy that aren't work related then your work-life balance can be okay and it can be as simple as just meeting up with friends for a drink on a day off or going out with your family or going to the cinema even if you want to stay at home on your day off and watch six hours of YouTube in bed as long as you are making time in your personal time to do things that make you happy then I do think we can change this work-life balance for the better
0: yeah now some some great words and I'm definitely a hypocrite for that answer I I very much take my work home still so it's 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 definitely something I have to work on as much as the industry. So you're exactly right now. We'll move on to the next question then, And that is a zoo's ambition, a zoo's, I guess it's it's part of what we are now, is to educate and inspire its audience to for our guests, for our, our paying members of the public. And and that could be done in a variety of ways. That is done in a variety of ways in itself across all the many zoos, just in the UK, let alone across Europe. Do you feel we're doing enough or do we need to still evolve more?
1: I, I don't think we are doing enough to interact with our guests or to put a positive spin on zoos. I think until the general consensus on zoos is that they are good rather than bad there is still work to do. Because you'll be at your local hairdressers and they're like, oh, what do you do for work? And you're like, oh, I'm a zookeeper. And then you've got a 20 minute conversation where you're stuck in a chair with someone cutting your hair, grilling you on, oh, zoo's good. Like, what do you think about this zoo? And stuff like that. So for me, until the general consensus across your everyday member of public that zoos are good, and the work and the conservation and the money that we provide conservation is a good thing and keeping animals in captivity is a good thing and until that has been achieved I think there's always work to do. I think we also need to be more transparent with the work that goes on in zoos and that includes the good work that we do but also some of the stuff that as a member of public you wouldn't necessarily see or know about unless you worked in a zoo and I know um, Longley when they put out about their um, red panda cubs unfortunately dying. For me that was a real step forward in how zoos communicate to not only their members but the general public because you know it's going to be picked up by media outlets and having that open and transparent for the good stuff and the bad i think is something that definitely needs to happen more i also think that the way that we are promoting zoos is still quite archaic. Usually it's just a picture with a load of text on a Facebook post and actually there's nothing really there to engage younger generations or to get people's personalities across. Because ultimately, people connect with either people or animals. The Chester Zoo programme, the the Longleat Zoo programme, are great ways of getting across to your everyday member of public about the good work that we do. But the the pull for those programmes is not always the animals, sometimes it's the keepers and how they interact with their animals. And I mean, I've had the pleasure of working at Longleat for a few days and I got to experience firsthand um, how many of your members would come up and uh, be like, oh, hi, James, how are you? And because they feel like they know you because they've seen you on TV. Having that better relationship with not only younger generations but for audiences that we may not reach generally so one thing that zsl are doing at the minute is we're offering three pound tickets for anyone on benefits and that has made the zoos much more accessible for people that normally would not be able to pay our entrance fee and one conversation that i've had with our team here before is that when i was younger My family would only be able to come up to the zoo once a year because we weren't in a position where we could come up. And okay, we were offering discounted tickets, but actually, You are making some of that money back when they're spending money in your shops for food and for presents and stuff like that. And by reducing that price, I think you give people more opportunity and they're more willing to actually go and get a tea rather than bring a picnic in or treat their children to a cuddly toy because they've not had to spend all of their money on your entrance fee. Uh, Yeah, I, I generally think that the social media pages on most zoos are quite boring and designed more to provide information to visitors in a very formal way to the point where if the zoo's closed or anything like that it's a picture of an animal or if there's a baby animal it's a bit of text with a picture of the baby animal. Um, Social media is something that can be used in a multitude of ways and with stuff like TikTok now and Instagram and all of those platforms I think zoos need to evolve with that to become more user-friendly and less rigid in the way that we provide our information to people. Because you can put out a hundred good articles on all the great conservation work that we do, but you'll put out one bad thing where an animal at 16 years old has sadly died or you'll have an animal escape and they're the ones that get picked up by the media it's not the 99 posts before that on how great we are and all the good work that we've been doing
0: no you're you're exactly right and i think it is you know a great example of those april Fools' posts that were all posted by the zoos it's it's that light-hearted fun it gets a message across and it it, in most importantly gets the zoos in people's brains about them actually doing the good rather than the bad which we do a lot more good than bad it is it's, we definitely need to shout louder. And it's it's definitely a, a big thing, which hopefully will only evolve with these changing of, of guidelines and stuff coming in very, very soon, if not imminently. Um, so we'll see what the future holds on that side. Now, you'd be happy to know we're nearly there. We're on that second. Well, we're on the last question now of the big questions. And that is, it's quite a simple one, but with probably quite a large answer. And that is do you think at a keeping level across zoos, we're collaborating enough?
1: Again, my, my answer is no. I think knowledge sharing is so important. And I think that there should be more interaction between keepers and the collections for the combined goal of improving keeper knowledge and animal welfare. Um, and as I spoke about earlier, one thing that we looked to do at the BMC was to make sure that training and enrichment was a everyday part of ZSL. And that started 12 years ago. So 12 years ago, training and enrichment was still a fairly new thing. But that goal has been achieved now and animals' welfare is being improved thanks to animal training and enrichment. But we, as the committee here at Whipsnade, we're now looking to work with other zoos so that, that we can share our knowledge of not only training and enrichment, because we've, at ZSL, across both sites, we're very lucky to cover Every taxer and um, most taxers have now been trained. There's fish at London that have been trained. As I said, we train with our stingray. And unless you know about that stuff, you may not think it's possible. But as well as trying to impart our knowledge on training and enrichment to other zoos, we also want to show zoos how they can set up their own behavioural management committee and how internally they can drive their own zoos forward in improving animal welfare. I also think that zoos seem to forget two really important things. The first is that if all zoos invest in their staff and make them better keepers, not only are they more likely to stay, but if they do leave, it also means that the general level of keeper expertise for zoos to hire from is higher because people are being put on courses. They're going to conferences their knowledge and their skills and how well they are becoming as a zookeeper will increase if you invest in people. We know in zoos generally there can at times be quite high turnover. That's for multiple reasons. But if you have a better pool of candidates to choose from, that's only going to benefit your zoo. Mm. Now the second thing that I think the industry seems to forget is that currently we are working really hard to ensure that there is a positive narrative around zoos and that the keeping of animals in captivity is for good reasons. However, we are only as good as our worst zoo, so we need to work together as a collection of zoos to ensure that all zoos are great. Because as I said earlier, zoos could put out a 100 articles of good things that we do. And Chester, Edinburgh, Longley, Whipsnade put out hundreds of articles over the course of a year about how good a zoo is. But if there's an animal escape at another zoo that reflects badly on all zoos because you just have to look at the comments section of that article and there's people, keyboard warriors, just uh, voicing their opinion about zoos in general. So we really need to, as a collective, work together to ensure that we can be proud as an industry of our worst zoo and say, okay, this is our worst zoo. But actually, if this is our worst zoo, every single zoo above this is still amazing because this worst zoo's welfare and animal training programs and enrichment programs and visitor experience is one of the best.
0: No, totally. A, a great, great answer and a, a really, really good way to, to end the big question. So you'll be happy to know you've, you've conquered them. We're through. We're on to the, the final portion of this podcast. But before we go there, I've got one last question. It's not a big question. It's just generally more of a uh, a shout out really for your taxer, and it's going a little off script to this one. And that is simply going back to the beginning, Why should a listener, whether it be them changing taxonomic group, them wanting to work in the industry or whatever it may be, what makes your taxa so special? Why, why should they work with them? So I think the reason
1: why people should work with the taxer that I currently work with is because they're so diverse. And they're so unknown, and I touched on this earlier, but ensuring that every single parameter of your animal's enclosure is exactly what it needs, so that it can reproduce. Or we do um, welfare audits here, and we it's marked on whether uh, an animal's just surviving or whether it's thriving. And you always aim to make sure that your animal is thriving because they are so unknown, until you actually get to know the species, I don't think you can really appreciate them for what they are. So we have some fish in our aquarium. We have three species of fish in the aquarium that are extinct in the wild. But unless you start working with that taxa or at least have an interest in learning more about them, you wouldn't know that. Some of those fish went extinct in the wild when I was two. So if it wasn't for scientists and conservationists working with those species up until this day, it's a species of animal I, I would never have worked with. for The conservation value that zoos can do with especially invertebrates and um, fish and to smaller reptiles, obviously, um, stuff like Komodo dragons need a lot more space. But your animals that don't take up much space, you can do so much good, not only for that species, but for your zoo um, as well, because we all know how zoos really want to contribute to conservation and that's through doing as much as we can because we know that when we get asked about oh is it right to keep animals in zoo one of our main arguments is yes because we are conserving that species and we are making sure that there is a better world for them to go out into and that in the meantime whilst we're making that habitat better for them that there is still a backup population and um, so that there are animals to go back into that habitat and as I said the, the management of the animals is so completely different to other um, taxa and I will say one challenge with this taxa is trying to remember all the scientific names because we've got over 100 fish tanks in our aquarium uh, as well as over 40 species of butterfly and stuff like that so just trying to m- memorize everyone's latin and scientific names um, is one of the biggest challenges as well
0: you know you're, you're working with obviously a variety of fish reptiles inverts you name it and it, i'm loving the passion i can hear it in your voice and i'm loving the the, the commitment to the up-and-coming taxes i would argue in the industry and not just your, your cute fluffy mammals so yeah some great great stuff now we're going to move on then to the quick fire rounds now the listeners will know very well by this point that this can go one of two ways it's either going to be treated quite competitively it can be a quick fire round or more, more so happens. And I'm sure, Tom, you'll know the sort of people we're referring to of this. Um, some some speakers have maybe erupted with conversation with certain questions. So we'll, we'll see how we get on. Um, but but the first one is your favourite animal.
1: Uh, so this will surprise people because it's not a animal I'm currently working with, uh, but white faced saki monkey. So they used to be on our section and they were a great primate to work with. One of my first. And um, I got to see a baby that I started working with, grow up and have his own babies. So for me, white-faced selfie monkeys.
0: Great shout. Okay, so number two then, what is your top tip for mental health and wellbeing?
1: I touched on it earlier, but make time to do things that you enjoy that aren't work-related.
0: Totally, totally. Now, this is a very left-field question. Your favourite film?
1: Yeah, this is a difficult one for me because I really do like my films. Um, however, I would have to say either uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri or Unstoppable. And they're both very different films.
0: OK, I'll let you have both of them. Or I'll let you go away with that. OK, so the next one then, the best part of the industry?
1: The animals and the friends that you make at work. Because without having a good group of people around you, work can be intolerable at times. So it's it's those connections that you not only make with your animals, but with the people you work with. Yeah,
0: totally, totally. OK, so this one could literally take you absolutely anywhere. And that is what zoo globally would you like to visit and why?
1: Um, so I'd like to visit Mandai Wildlife Group. It's a collection of different zoos and I'd also be in Singapore. So that's that's pretty nice.
0: Yeah, solid. There's plenty of zoos over there to pick from. Nice um, and great, great shouts. Now, OK, then, so the next one. This is more personal. And that is what is that one trait that has allowed you to get you to where you are today? Uh, never
1: giving up and not taking no as an answer. Um, so every year at ZSL, we have a PDR in which you get um, reviewed by your manager and you have to have um, three external people that you work with closely review you. Uh, and one of the comments was that uh, I never take no for an answer and I always find a way to make it work. So it's not that you just annoy someone by repeating yourself over and over again but if you can find a way to alter it so that actually something that may not have worked can work and then i think that's that's one of my traits that has definitely got me as far
0: as i've gone great uh great advice there as well now with this next one i say it every time i i struggle with an answer for this one so good luck and that is if you wasn't a zookeeper what, what would you be uh,
1: so either a racing driver or a pilot so anyone that's been in a car with me knows that I take corners probably a little bit quicker than I should. Uh, so I'd like to think I'd, I'd have a, a good crack at becoming
0: a race driver. Oh, amazing! Well, who knows? Who knows what the future holds for you? <laughs> okay, so the next one then is what? What do you feel we need to improve in the industry?
1: I think one of the things that we need to improve is opportunities for. Your more senior members of staff because when you're learning and you're progressing through being trainee keepers, you are given those opportunities to learn. But I feel like there becomes a point in a lot of older keepers careers where they kind of hit stagnation because they know everything on their section and and unless you're getting a bunch of new animals in and the amount of learning that you actually do is quite limited. And uh, I don't like using the word, but I feel like some... Older keepers, they're just there to do the basic job so that your younger keepers can do the project work and stuff that those older keepers would have done when they were your age. But also more opportunities for keepers to be involved with in situ conservation. Most keepers will never get the chance to even see the animals they work with in the wild, let alone actually contribute to their um,
0: conservation so that's something I'd like to see as well yeah no some some great shouts and uh, once again I, I've got a feeling that stuff might be on the horizon I think there's a glimmer of hope with all that sort of stuff so we'll, we'll see what the industry diverts into now the next one it's a bit more personal and this one is who is your idol within the industry
1: Yeah, for me very easy David Attenborough I met had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times but he was one of the people that you would watch or for my generation, would watch his programs and be like, wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Solid shout. I've got a feeling his name's going to come up a few times in this podcast now. OK, so we're, we're coming towards the end of this. We've, we've nearly made it to us. We're, we're very, very close. We're on that last question. OK, that last one is one of my hardest. And that's because I want to dial you down from all of this chatting down to only three words. I want you to describe this whole industry in only three. Have a go.
1: Rewarding. Challenging
0: and fulfilling yeah that's okay that's that I, I think that's pretty well well described and uh pretty much sums up the industry in one so unfortunately that does lead us to the end of this podcast now hopefully i'm i'm sure i can agree with all my lovely listeners listening thank you so so much for coming on tom it, it's been a real pleasure and um I say thank you for sharing your story thank you very much for having me and hopefully we'll get you on again very very soon yeah that'd be great take care of yourself until then thanks bye And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.